0: You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Adam, what is your
1: favorite food? Oh, that's so hard.
0: Really? Because there's so many or because you eat such a bland diet? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) kind of like
1: dry rice yeah, and uh, my mini My favorite meats. food is Ritz crackers. Is it really? No, no well. of course not. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, sushi. Let me just... I, sushi. What,
0: you sushi are good so... One. Cultured. And we're also in the studio today with ramen. the one. Ramen. I change it. Ramen. Wait. Oh,
2: that was going to be mine. No, was it really? You guys are I'm so, so sorry.
0: Japanese and such good friends. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Cassie Bryant is here with us today, the children's minister from the Dallas campus and also one of our resident foodies. Cassie, is your favorite food really ramen?
2: It's one of them, yeah. Okay. But I guess I'll go with chocolate.
0: Cho- oh, just any yeah. kind of
2: chocolate? No, dark chocolate.
0: Dark chocolate. Yeah. Some people can justify that as healthy, right? Well, on today's episode... <laughs> hang, on, hang on, hang on. Oh, hang on. I'm sorry. What's Adam, your favorite Back food? to you. Yeah. Oh, my favorite food? I like pizza. Okay. That's
2: <laughs> great. I was going to guess burgers.
0: Yeah, I was too. Why would you guess burgers? Just by looking at me? What no. is that supposed no. to mean? No,
2: I think pizza is <doesn't> any be better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I do love food. I love it a lot. And so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to this episode. We've got a great interview with uh, Margaret Feinberg coming up. She was really a delight to talk to. And we'll talk and hear a little bit about how Christians should talk about food. So without further ado, let's start. All right, Cassie Bryant is with us today, and she is the children's minister at our Dallas campus. Like I said, she's also a foodie. Cassie, has this been a lifelong passion of yours, loving food?
2: Not lifelong. No, we grew up on a steady diet of like Hamburger Helper and <laughs> scalloped potatoes. That's like awesome. The, you know, um, no, I think that I it was traveling that kind of made me love food. As really, we kind of got exposed to other cultures and food. I was my eyes kind of opened to yeah how awesome and how great it tastes, but also just like the stories behind food, um, and just how it kind of represents entire generations and cultures. Yeah. And so many different cultures you
0: experience, you experience that culture through their food, right? You learn about them. Adam, is that similar for you? I know you're, you're a big foodie as well.
1: Yeah. I, you know, um, I grew up, my mom is, is a great cook and so grew up, um, with home cooked meals, there was there was a, a flavor to it. Uh, her family's from New Orleans, so we had a, like you know that sort of regional dishes there, um, a, a lot of sort of Cajun foods and different seafood and stuff like that. And so, um, she's just a wonderful cook, and so I always appreciated like really good comfort food. Yeah. But I wouldn't have known what it meant to kind of really explore everything. I don't know. Is is foodie culture a recent phenomenon? It feels like it to me. It feels like maybe in the last. few 15 years all totally. of a sudden it's like oh this you know love food in a different way Be explore a little bit more yeah. Yeah. be connected to where your food comes from all that I kind of stuff I think what's new that kind of encourages it is Food Network there's shows on 24 hours a day about yep. it yep. but there's also
0: uh, social media culture that says you take pictures of what you eat and if it looks good people want to experience it yeah. and then that's become marketing for so many restaurants that want to encourage food but I think also the the more we become a global economy then and you're able to travel more easily, you're exposed to different cultures, so you get exposed to different foods. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like canned vegetables, meat, and, you know, uh, something on the side, like a, a carb of some kind. Now, when we go to a restaurant, e- there's food from all over the world, even in what would typically be an American food restaurant. Or- that's
1: that's sort of like, that's funny to talk about that experience, because like growing up, it was like a really nice restaurant it was a steakhouse. Yeah. Like, that's it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then I moved to New York, and really, I became a foodie because of my wife, but w- when I was there... We started, like, going out to all different kind of restaurants and and just different culinary experiences where maybe it doesn't have to be fancy, like a white tablecloth restaurant or something like that. Um, And it doesn't have to be a steakhouse, but it's like the best food you've ever had. And even saying that, there are people I know who are friends of mine who's like, that's not a category for – even still to this day, it's like not a category for them. They're like, oh, no, when it's – you go to a steakhouse when you want a really nice meal, which it is a good meal. I don't mean it's not – but I mean it's – it's that's fairly narrow. there's something about
2: going and ordering – on like an iPad and standing and waiting for your ramen Yes. and getting that like hot bowl, bowl. and it's cold yes. outside. Yes, yes, it's yes. awesome.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So before we jump into kind of thinking about food, what are some of your favorite restaurants in Dallas? This is a really, it's a personal question for me because you guys know way more about this stuff than I do. But if you listen, just don't go all day, but give me a couple. What are your favorite restaurants? If somebody was brand new to the city, you would say, hey, if you're into food culture and you're new here, you should go check out what?
2: Uh, there's one that's new in Dallas called Petra and the Beast mm. that is really good. Petra
0: and the Beast. It sounds like, Adam, wasn't that your band? The <laughs> Close. Okay. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. What was it?
2: Uh, no, they make everything. It's like forage, farm, ferment. There's another F word in there somewhere. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> But they, uh, so they for make me, everything there for, and Honestly, it's for me, though,
0: I don't understand these foods. So forage is like, hey, we found it somewhere.
2: Yeah, I guess. Mushrooms. Yeah. Oh, okay. Forage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they have, like, lots of local farmers and stuff like that that provide the produce. And then they have a tasting menu on Saturday, which we've not done that. It's hard to get reservations, but they're open for lunch and dinner, and you can go in. And it's really, like, it's not... Super fancy. Mm-hmm. They it's plasticware and napkins, okay. and you order up front. It's counter service, and but the food is excellent. And, okay. Yeah, it's really really good. Uh, and then probably Uchi is the other one. Mm. Like if you're gonna splurge, go that's get where some they sushi. they like
0: fly in fresh sushi from Japan every day, that's right? Here. Yeah, never yeah. Asked. They do that overnight from it's, Tokyo.
1: You know, but I just it's it's not. I will say Uchi would be one of mine too. It's not. If you're like oh it's just traditional Japanese fare, don't think of it that way. It really is you could go if if you're not even into like Asian food or Japanese food more specifically, you could go there and really yes. enjoy the experience. It's very good food.
2: And everyone there loves the food. That's so they'll right. like we've gone to celebrate an anniversary once and People, even the waiter that's not our waiter will like, waiters will bring their favorite dish to us. They'll bring Mm. like a sampling. This is my favorite thing on the menu, and just wanted you guys to try it. That's cool. So they have like, they share the love for the food Mm. there on the staff, which is kind of cool.
1: Adam? One space, yeah, there's a lot. I could go on forever, but one space that I will mention, it's probably not new to most foodies out there, but it's Lucia. And it is just. Some of the best food I've ever had.
0: What's so great about it?
1: You know, I don't know if it's simply the preparation. the The menu is always changing, which is always a great sign because it means you have a chef who's who is innovative. It, well, innovative and cares about the food, right? Mm. So when you just go and it's the same menu every time, you're going to get your mainstays on a menu, of course. But when it's that means you probably have a chef who designed the menu who has nothing to do with the restaurant. Mm. The it's an executive chef who came in and opened a restaurant, and there's great restaurants who do that. I'm not, but it, just when you go to one where the menu's changing, it means somebody's thinking all the time about how they're making their food, the process of it and everything else. So I, what I'll say is it's um, Italian um, and uh, it is wonderful, wonderful but not, like
2: food. mom's No, no, no,
1: no, 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 no. Not Olive Garden. Um, it's great breads, great meats, great okay. pastas, great seasonal pastas and things like that. And I'm not a big pasta guy. So I go and I get, I generally don't get pasta when I go there, frankly. Um, but it is, it's, So the food is so good. It's super small. It's almost impossible to get a table. Okay. Uh, The chef many years ago won a James Beard Award. They just opened another restaurant. I can't remember the name of it. It starts with an M and I cannot remember the name. It's in
2: Oak Cliff as well.
1: It's also in Oak Cliff. But they, those restaurants, man, if you could go, that's one where it's like, um, if you don't mind sitting sort of at the bar, uh, you can go maybe. Or on a
2: nice day, the patio. Nice you get day, there right pat- at 5 exactly. o'clock, you can get a patio yep. table. Yep.
1: Or you can go and. Just yep. Yeah, just two people, by the way. They don't right, take right. reservations, I think, over six people. So mm-hmm. it's a super small space, but it is wonderful food. That's awesome. Wonderful food.
0: Well, let me tell you, you guys are way more into this culture than I am. Can I tell you my favorite restaurants real quick? And then I have an opinion that I want you to fight me on. Okay. okay.
1: Please so don't. It- if I were Just, going for I'm breakfast. I'm cringing already.
0: Don't I would go to there's a place called Good Friend in East Dallas that makes oh, incredible yeah. breakfast. Right. It's yes. really really good. Yes. Uh, Jimmy's Food Store makes incredible oh, sandwiches. Is awesome, yes. Dude.
2: That's Petra and the Beast is right by Jimmy's. Is that yep. right? Yep. Okay.
1: Yep. Well that's why I'd never been there cuz if I'm there
0: yeah, I'll you're go to, going
2: Jimmy's. to Jimmy's. Also right
1: by Jimmy's is <laughs> <laughs> Urbano Cafe. Which is right there, and, and it's, really it's actually great food. You can okay. bring your own wine. I like that place.
0: Okay, so I love Jimmy's Food Store. They, can, yep. they have this little kind of mafia esque back dining yes. room that I oh, like yeah. to, Dude, you walk through the kitchen to go eat. I love it. And then great ve- lunch there. You can get sandwiches yes. and stuff. Yeah. And the they're the Italian, their Italian meats and everything. They're incredible. The Italian salient sandwich. That's what I would recommend. Okay, and then uh, Velvet Taco, which I just Dude, love. You're doing Velvet great. Taco. Am I you're doing okay? You're okay. doing great. Okay. Really now thought wait. thought you were going to
2: throw a fast food chain in
0: there. I do. Just wait. Because here comes my here's comes my hard fastball down the middle. Okay. Okay. Chili's. Okay. Oh, he did it. <laughs> you did it. If Chili's were not a chain, yeah. and if it was owned by a local person, yeah. wouldn't you all rave about how good their food was? But because no. it's a chain, you're like, oh, Chili, I don't know who wants no. to go to Chili's. It's inexpensive and it's delicious. What's the difference between Chili's and uh, a beans? different restaurant? Or Chili's <laughs> has frozen
1: no. food that is flown in from yeah. a corporate warehouse or driven in from a corporate warehouse. That's you can taste the It's frozen difference. for a week, There's and no then chef. they just heat it up in the back.
0: Yeah, and it's delicious.
1: I look, I'm not saying there aren't flavors that you may enjoy from time to time because it's slathered in, you know, yeah, sauces, sauces and stuff. <laughs> but there I will say in look, dude, there is a reality that like people's palates are are different and all stuff. Yeah, this you guys are more refined than me. That's not true. No. I think it's just a matter of um yeah, I think the more you you would try different places, I think that chilies just gets eclipsed more yeah, and more and more, go and you know what go- I mean?
2: This is disappointing. It used to be great, and yeah. now yes. you've been exposed to something else, and then okay. it falls short.
0: But it's okay that I still like chilies, right? Are Of you. Are we ripping on people that like Applebee's? No. no. Okay.
2: Oh, maybe.
1: <laughs> Look, yes, well, there's a the sense in which I'm a snob, but you're, I think... You're entitled to your oh, stuff. You know, <laughs> the dumplings,
2: the cracker have barrel. The dumplings,
1: the cracker barrel. Hey, we all have our. Um, but here's the thing, for nostalgic. for food, yeah, yeah. But here's, here's here's the picture I want to paint.
0: For a foodie who's like really appreciated food, it's almost like insulting to say, "Hey, we're gonna go to um, to Golden Corral." You're like, we would never be there. But there's a whole sector of our culture that for whom uh, Golden Corral is like fancy meal. And so there's kind of a, a wealthy idea around foodie culture. It's like, well, since it's you can afford luxury. to go to Uchi where you can barely get a table For and it sure. costs you $100. It's super bourgeois.
1: There's no doubt about yes. that.
0: So in what ways – because I do think that I want to create an episode here who doesn't only appeal to like the, the super wealthy segment of society. But I do think there's an obsession with food in our culture, American culture, but there's segments of that culture that still have some pretty small palates or pretty small degrees of understanding of other cultural palates. What ways, uh, tell me about um, the ways that our culture is obsessed with food. How does that manifest? Where do you see that happening? Is that just in conversation with you and your friends, or do you see it as like, man, it's, it affects a lot more than that?
2: I think it probably started, I mean, I feel like my first interaction with thinking about food other than like just what's my next meal? Uh, it was probably either Super Size Me, that documentary mm. that came out. I mm-hmm. don't even know how long ago that was. And then Michael Pollan wrote a book, and Wendell Berry's written some stuff on food that just kind of makes you think more about where your food's coming from and why we eat. And um, is it
0: more related to health? Is that what you're saying? Some
2: it's- of it, yeah. Some of it is, and just and also the effects that our food industry has, like on our economy and the workforce and all that kind of stuff as well. And yeah.
1: treatment of animals, treatment treatment of
0: property. The workers,
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, that, I think the awakening for me was in college. I was actually in a Texas history class, which was awesome. It was such a good class. Um, and we had a guest lecturer come in. He was a student, a grad student at Texas A&M. And wasn't your typical like, uh, you know, down with big agribusiness guy. I mean, he was like conservative from Texas A&M, but he was really into local Ranching, local farming, and local ranching, and not for again, not for like any radical reason or something, but just like, hey, w- what I've found is actually when you're connected to your food source and when you know your animals and you know this and you know that, there's just a uh, way in which the food's better, the animals are cared for better, the land's cared for better. You're and, grateful, and you're grateful, your gratitude and is. you understand. And I never knew that. Like, mm. so for instance, the idea that like, um, there's all these studies done about like. Uh, We eat a ton of food that's not in season. So what's that mean? It Mm -hmm. means that there are certain places, generally those around the equator, that the land is just farmed and farmed and farmed and farmed farmed until the topsoil is depleted. And uh, we're eating like, you know, avocados year round and all these kind of things. Well, also the energy your body gets from that does not compare to the waste that's produced by flying those things in constantly. Mm -hmm. So there's this way of, so this local foraging, this local farm to table, these kind of movements that you probably hear about and you're like oh my gosh and you roll your eyes at because it seems so bourgeois and everything it's actually harkening back to the way that people used to eat like, it's a stewardship yeah. thing so like yeah. when you're eating local foods that are in season what you're actually doing is maximizing right the efficiency of the calories you get connected to the impact it has on the earth and the land and things like that and so not to not to mention supporting local businesses and all these other things and so just that like those weird connections and in that, that click you know it yeah. just started to be like oh wait maybe it's not good to just like you know eat eat these foods Whatever. that are shipped in from yeah. wherever at you know bargain prices all year round i, I don't know if that makes sense yeah. but, I, yeah. I hear
2: what you're saying adam in terms of like that's like that even to think about and then change the way we consume it feels like a luxury not everyone has the resources right, to do that um, yeah. or even the time to think about it that of it's
0: yeah, let yeah. me take it from there, because luxury is probably a good word for it, because for some people they would go, well, I'm not going to spend that much on food, and is it just because it's delicious, is it because it's healthy, is it because of a political statement we're trying to make, is it a, a preservation thing, but there is a version of this that has connection to the kind of poverty gospel that says if it's more expensive, then it's not godly, or if it's more, if you have to spend more on it, then you're not uh, stewarding your own dollars well, but is there is there a false poverty gospel around this that says, no, food is a a gift to be enjoyed, so it's okay to indulge, or is any indulgence and pleasure something that we would say, hey,
1: be careful? I think it's a category mistake because you do not have to be rich to enjoy good food. You may have to be a good cook. So let me I know that sounds funny, but it is true. Like I think of my mom's family, seven kids, they usually had tons of relatives over at the same time. They're all sitting around a table. My grandfather's a cop. They have no money. They are poor of the poor. They Didn't have enough beds to go around, not enough rooms, all these things. But they enjoyed food, enjoyed it, and it was great food. And my grandmother was a wonderful cook. It wasn't because they were going to, like, the best restaurants or doing any of these things. They bought good ingredients. They sat at a table together. She cooked good food. They had a great meal around a table. And they didn't have any money. So I think it's a category mistake. Maybe maybe it's bourgeois to say, like, oh, you got to go out to restaurants all the time to enjoy food. But one of the things my wife and I – well, I want to start doing more uh, is I'll try to cook on special occasions and stuff like that. And it is such a fun experience to cook together and to try new recipes and to go outside – the box and guess what lots of times it's no good But there are those times where you you knock it out of the park and it's so rewarding, you know? And it's not like we went and spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on something. It's just like we bought some ingredients and tried a new recipe, you know? Does that make sense?
0: No, I I think that's exactly what I was hoping to hear you say. And I'm really glad you brought in the aspect that food brings people together, in particular your own family. There's something about sitting around the dinner table together, but there's also something about working in the kitchen together. And whether that means you're cooking the food or you're cleaning the dishes, there's something to the community. Communal aspect of it. Uh, also, there's something to not having to do the dishes and being oh, in a restaurant and just great. enjoying that. I'm not against that at all. I love walking away from dirty dishes on the table and saying, totally. "This is why we paid somebody else to do it." But I want to get to from that what the Bible does teach us about food because I do think food is a food is a gift and having a palate that's a gift. It shows some delight in the Lord. What does the Bible teach us about the gift that food is? Well, and-
2: just thinking, like, not all of our meals are memorable. So, mm-hmm. like, that's something that recently I've just read, The Liturgy of the Ordinary mm-hmm. um, by Tish Harrison and Warren, I think is her name. but um, And she talks about how—she has a whole chapter on food, and she kind of talks about her you're sitting down to eat a bowl of leftovers and how most of the meals that nourish us are unforgettable. Like, they're not— They are forgettable, we, you mean? Yeah. They you are said, forgettable. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yes. Yep. Um, they're forgettable. And so they— they, we don't talk about them the next day, but they're what's they're the thing that are sustaining us from day to day to day. And that 90% of our meals are not something that we're writing home about or that we're Instagramming. Um, but it's just a bowl of leftovers. But it's something that we are still to be grateful for, for how God uses. And then she ties it into um, the sacrament of communion and mm. uh, taking the meal and how Jesus chooses bread and wine yeah. as a way to commune with his people. Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah, that we've touched great. on some of these things. Like you touched on nourishment and health before, the Bible will talk about that we've talked about how the creativity of it Adam, you talked about that about trying recipes trying things and being being creative i do think there's something in foodie culture that just wants to trick up something ordinary and like and say like in that cool sure, looking it sure. took a cheeseburger and now it's got donuts instead of buns sure. and now instead of cheese it's got Ugh, so uh, uh coconut paste or something like that, that's, like, the oh, yeah. of that. that's the worst that's the worst you know is that's it? like the worst of it yeah. okay yeah cuz there's a version of that that i really believe is is too common Yes. That like, hey, we're of going to this taco is. shop, yeah. but instead of tortillas they use pancakes of and course. you're like, those oh, are gimmicks. Okay.
1: That has nothing to
0: do with good food. Okay. Come on, Adam. Unless it works, like Locos tacos, you
1: know.
2: Unless you know. it works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But they're still but, fads, right? It's like the corona exactly right. and all this. It's like that was big for a month. Nobody cares. Anymore, and delicious. You know? but and, and delicious, yeah. but yeah. nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But how there is a there's also a dark side to food. There's um I, I would love to make sure that we caveat this with some eating disorders, whether it's uh, gluttony or whether it's bulimia or whether it's anorexia. Mm-hmm. There are ways to mistreat food, and especially connected to the things we've already talked about, whether it's creativity that's created a pride in you that says, I would never eat what that person would eat, or whether it's a uh, a, a health issue where you're saying, I, I can't eat what that person eats because of a self-image issue. But talk through me, uh, talk with me a little bit about people in the church and where we would see a disordered understanding of food. What are the ways that manifests and how would you coach somebody through this in this discussion about uh, godly thinking about food?
2: Oh, man. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, going back to the stewardship thing and food, all the way from the way that we consume it, but also just like learning from trying to feed my kids, it's like it's the one thing they can control. And so that Mm kind of carries into the rest of our days as we grow older, it's like this thing that we can control and we can either exhibit self-control and good stewardship or we can exhibit the opposite of that where we are trying to flex that. Like I am in control of this thing and so I'm going to choose to overeat or overindulge or I'm going to choose to deprive, um, deprive myself yeah. in order to reach this other goal that I have that's skewed. And so it's, it, I think it comes down to that idea of control.
1: Yeah, I, I that is so key. And thinking about... What you were saying a second ago—to know what that it's disordered. First, you have to know the right order. So, Good. what you said a second ago—what is how does the Bible approach food? Right, and we were, we've been talking around a little bit, but just that idea of it is a gift, which is something you said. Yeah. It's a gift that we can enjoy. It's a gift that we can indulge our creativity. It's a gift where we can um, that nourishes our bodies. So we see that from God. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. you are provider, right? If we mm-hmm. connect all these things back to God, uh, it's it's. Um, It is a gift that brings us together, right? Good. Uh, And then when you point forward, especially that together piece, uh, we are going to be enjoying... The, the feast the supper of the lamb right yeah. at, the, at the end of all things and so there will be a feasting that happens there so I think there's there's a celebratory aspect there's a spectrum right there's a there's that nourishment aspect it's there to get us through uh, uh, and then there is the cel- celebratory aspect with it okay so then how can we take that and disorder it right if we yeah. stop seeing it as a gift and we only see it as fuel mm-hmm. then it can become this weird uh, control approach yeah. uh, if we don't see it as um, being nourishment and for good health but we see it as our ultimate comforter then we go to it to help you know numb our feelings or whatever else. and so that's what i mean i think you have to kind of look at what it's for and then it in each one of those cases to start to look at what's the disordered version of that and you can connect it very quickly to all the ways it can go wrong which it it certainly can you know yeah um
0: yeah, yep. I think food is a good example of something we talk about many times in the show whether it's technology or education, other things that are not inherently evil. Food is not inherently evil no. but mankind will always find a way to abuse or twist something that is even good and a gift in order to disorder it, in order to abuse it. So food can be something you think about just talking about waste in our country which we didn't have time to talk about but maybe in a later episode we'll talk about recycling and waste how much gets thrown away in our country because of not only restaurants who have to fly things in so things spoil uh, but just think about what we don't complete as we eat mm. or what we uh, serve as hot and then later just throw away that is perfectly good food and the rest of the world hunger is a very real issue in the rest of the world. So when you talk about a luxury of being able to talk about what food we choose, whereas in some parts of the world, it's there is not healthy food. There's not clean water. And so there's whole other discussions we know that we're not getting into today, but I do want to summarize this real quick. Food is a delight and a gift from God, and it is a sustaining work that shows us the attributes of God, where he is creative, where he delights. And at the same time, there are so many ways, like everything else we talk about in the show, that within our culture, there are ways to abuse it, to make much of yourself, to be prideful, to be gluttonous, to deprive it of yourself, to make it about, uh, to obsess about your own health, as if to say, uh, when the Bible says, that my body is a temple, we make our body a God very easily. Mm. Where our bodies are supposed to serve God, instead we make our body the God itself, saying this is what I do because I want to make much of myself, I want to be shaped like this, or I want to look like this, or I want to have opinions that people admire, instead of treating food like what it is, a good gift that points us to who God actually is.
3: Hi, I'm Margaret Fleinberg and author speaker and pastor's wife based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, where my husband is a campus pastor, and I've recently been on a crazy journey of studying food and the Bible.
0: So Margaret, in your new book Taste and See, you talk a lot about God as a foodie or as a master chef. Can you just elaborate on that for those people who haven't read the book yet? What does that mean, God as a foodie? Yeah.
3: Yeah, you know, I started looking at food in the Bible. And just kind of wanted to get a fresh insight, start to see things from a different angle. And what I began to discover is that if you start to look for food in the Bible, it literally pops and sizzles on almost every page. And when we start in the Genesis, the creation story, we look at a God who literally created the garden kind of like a Zagat-rated heavenly buffet i mean i imagine that in the cool of the day when adam and the original woman eve were walking with god that they were nibbling and noshing on various fruits plucking a fig looking for um a fresh vegetable and they walked together in that beautiful place and what we discover is that even after the original sin which involves food that God does not shove food to the side. In fact, time and time again, He uses food as imagery and metaphor to call us closer to Himself. I mean, Jesus comes and reveals Himself as the bread of life, as the shepherd related to another food store, as the true line. His name, Messiah, means the anointed one, which speaks of olive oil as a type of common anointing oil in that time period. And we, so we see that from the beginning to Christ to the very end, where Jesus describes that he is knocking at the door of our hearts, inviting us in to dine with him, to sup with him, all the way to the closing of Revelation, where we will gather all the children of God in this epic feast, that God was the original Hootie. And if that word foodie is intimidating to someone, just remember that foodie is someone who simply takes a particular interest in food. And I don't know about you, but but I do. I'm only thinking about what I'm going to have <laughs> for dinner tomorrow night. Mm. And so if you do, we should totally be friends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward to today, why do you think our culture is so obsessed with food?
3: Ooh, I think that people are getting more curious. I think one of the things that I discovered in this book and in my own life is how disconnected that we have become from our food sources. I mean, that's part of the reason that I went 410 feet down into a salt mine, fished in the Galilee, brought in an olive harvest in Croatia, spent time with an expert on ancient grains at Yale University as I'm looking at these specific foods in the Bible on a granular level. But I think in a popular culture, we're, we're asking the question of, wait a second, there is something missing in our lives. We We now buy food out of Plastic containers and cardboard boxes, and so we want to know more. What are our food sources? I also think there's this hunger that, for many of us, in this fast food, busy, fast paced culture, that we're starting to lose that gathering around the table, and that that recognition that the table, in the time of Christ um, and before, it is that place of transformation. It is that place where we gather, and when we do, we're hungry. I think more than just the appetizer and the main course from the dessert, I think we're hungry to know and to be known, to love and be loved, to be vulnerable, to to push away the shame in our lives as we make ourselves known and invite Christ into that place.
1: Margaret. As somebody who loves food and as somebody who loves the Bible, I think you might be the smartest person I've ever met (laughs) because you have some, you made the connection and then got to explore this thing, which I just think must have been like. Honestly, such a an dream. incredible journey, a dream. Yeah, I'm like, why didn't I think of this? And why <laughs> haven't I just been eating a bunch and then telling my wife, "Hey, listen, yeah, this research. is I'm researching here. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go to salt mine. I need to." But I'm, uh, but I'm being funny. But really, um, I'd love to hear about this journey. What were some of the experiences, the culinary experiences? Maybe expand a little bit more on on some of those things that you were just referencing a second ago.
3: Yeah. You know, when you start to look at food, I actually handpicked six different foods. Years ago, I wrote a book, and Bible study called Scouting the Divine. Um, I searched for God in wine, wool, and wild honey, spending time with farmers and beekeepers and shepherds and grape growers and opening up the Bible and just asking, how do you read this, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And the answers changed the way I read the Bible forever. But when I got done, I knew that I wasn't done. I mean, there are so many other foods in the Bible, and so I handpicked out six more for this book and Bible study, and began looking at them. I, you know, went down into that 410 feet down into a salt mine in order to better understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the salt of the earth. I traveled to one of the foremost experts on ancient grains, uh, the head of the Yale Divinity School, and invited myself into his kitchen, a little awkward, but kind of awesome, yeah. and we, <laughs> we spent an afternoon... You know, making matzah in under 18 minutes the kosher way and understanding that the grains that were used in the time of Christ and, and in antiquity were primarily not white flour like we see today, but but it was it was a darker flour. It was, a, it was often barley flour um, and spelt and or farro because it's more hardy. It can withstand pestilence and storm. And, and that was the food of the poor. And so when you start to understand that, then when you see Jesus, who is on top of a mountain, about to feed thousands and thousands of people, he could have selected any food and he chooses fish and barley bread, the food of the poor, and in that selection is confessing indeed his solidarity with the poor. Mm. And so when you start to look at these in depth, all of a sudden the scripture comes alive in a whole new way.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love things that give me a better context of understanding the Scripture. That was beautiful. I'd never heard that before. What, for you personally, do you feel like uh, you learned about God as you went through this process? Was there anything that you can point to and say, I did not, not just did not know this about the context of the Scripture, but what about God's nature and His attributes did you learn from this journey?
3: So many things. Goodness, in each of the six um, foods that I looked at, I began to discover a different attribute. Um, I think one of the one of the many significant ones was going to Croatia to bring in an olive harvest with a family who didn't even have electricity. So we are doing it old, old-school, ancient way, I guess would be the best way to say it. And, you know, God, and in the Scripture, you know, we, we talk about God as being the healer. But we would spend eight, ten hours a day reaching up, picking olives, your hands, you know, and you'd get scratched by the branches, but you pull and you pull, you come home, and, and you're... Your shoulders are completely sore, and, and yet I remember after one of those nights, I looked at my hands, and even though there were a couple of scratches, they looked and felt like they'd been at a world-class spa all day. And if you start to look at the presence of healing, and especially olive oil in the Bible, whether it's used for the anointing as we're called to go forward and be prayed for and anointed by the leaders of our church, uh, whether we start to look at the story of the the widow whose, whose sons were basically... Uh, sold into slavery trafficked when the when the prophet comes along and says, Grab every container you can find and then performs that miracle of the all of the oil, the olive oil, and then she sells it in order to get her own freedom. That is an act of God's healing. And so his healing is is who he is, but he even embedded those properties into the leaves of the olive tree and into the olive itself, as well as its oil. And we start to see the incredible, intricate involvement of our God and how personal he is in his healing nature. Mm.
2: So food is something that everyone thinks about, um, and even if we haven't studied it, it's something that we have to think about. It's necessary. Can you help us with what is a distinctly Christian way to think about food? Can you help us understand what that is?
3: Yeah, this is something I just felt kind of convicted and really challenged about in this whole Taste and See book and Bible study. And that was this idea that for me, food had become a commodity. And whenever something becomes a commodity, I think we all need to be aware because that is increasingly happening in our culture. And so... When food becomes a commodity, we start to commoditize, you know, eating, uh, mm. getting it done. In other words, just food as fuel. The problem with that is that food was never meant to be a commodity, and we commoditize it. Mm. We, we often injure the soil. We injure the workers. There, there's a lot of downward rolling of, of, of negative impact whenever something is commodified. And what I had to do is I filled in the scriptures, and I began to see no, 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 God created humans to live with food. None of us can live without food. Um, We need it. He could have made us to lick rocks or eat stones, right? Munchy, 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 no more teeth. (laughs) But instead, (laughs) what he does is he makes us dependent on this thing, and then through each bite, we have the invitation as followers of Christ to recognize that God is our sustainer. God is the one who hung the sun who, who who strung the stars, who created the seasons, who fashioned the rainstorms, that that food would grow or even be possible. And so with each bite, we can give thanks to God and recognize Him as our sustainer. Then we recognize Him as our provider. Then we begin to recognize that God, just as He was the originator of hospitality in the garden, He was the one who laid out the garden and then met with Adam and Eve in that garden, that for us today and through Christ, He wants to be present at every table. And that before people come over to dinner, we just started praying and saying, God, Holy Spirit, show up, praying for each person, and then coming to the table with that expectation that Christ is going to meet us there, and our eyes are going to open with that great joy, like those on the road to Emmaus when they broke the bread.
0: That was just beautiful. And I'm hungry. Uh, that was fantastic. One of my one of my favorite things about uh, getting to talk to an author, I, I love hearing about your book, and I love hearing a little bit about you getting to know you, but we got the author on the phone, so I really want to ask you as we kind of come to a close, is there anything that you uh, were really sad that it didn't make the book that you really wanted to talk about but just didn't quite fit or anything that kind of ended up on the, the cutting room floor or anything that you – or if there's anything that really just um, – it just moved you, but didn't quite make the story.
3: Mm, I think one of the foods that I wanted to look at, and honestly, there just wasn't enough space to do it, was I wanted to look at dairy in the Bible and cheese. Because, I mean, right, every excuse to go and sample cheese is a good one. You uh, think?
0: Now, be careful. Adam is uh, lactose intolerant. And so okay. Uh, okay. I, am from Wisconsin, so I have an over obsession to make up for both of us. Uh, but listen, keep talking; you're talking my language. Like
1: cheese, so, Margaret. I am lactose intolerant. I love cheese. I often say, in "The new heavens and new earth. I'm going to be a dairy farmer because I'll finally be able to eat it <laughs> and be okay." So I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's good theology, but I'm just saying. I hope it's true. So keep going. I love the discussion. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so real quick, just one of the things about, um, you know, there's that wonderful passage that describes that God has cattle on a thousand hills. And I always thought, oh, well, cool, God has a lot of cows. He's rich. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But what I began to understand when I started to just even, it ended on the cutting floor, but I started to look at this idea of dairy and cheese in the Bible, is that people in antiquity saw cows very different than us, and that for them it wasn't just I, th- I think it's steak. I'll just be honest. Like, I go straight to, okay, we got a lot. Of, we got a, God's ready to open a steakhouse. <laughs> when in fact, people rarely slaughtered their animals. I mean, that was one of their most prized possessions, and the reason was is because it was a renewable resource. Mm. And so if you had a cow, you didn't just have meat, but you had the ability to produce milk, to make cheese, to have an ongoing food source that would uh-huh. sustain you and your family. And that imagery of God owning the cattle on a thousand hills doesn't just refer to the cows, it refers to the goats and the sheep. Yeah. And so we see this incredible portrait of just how abundant and sustaining our God is in the presence of of, of cattle and milk and sheep in the Bible.
0: Man, I'm moved. Adam, intolerance okay? Are you all right over there?
1: I'm okay. Okay, good. (laughs) I'm hungry. He's really hungry. And I want to eat cheese.
0: Yeah, and cheese is great. It's not sustainable, but it makes so many other foods better. So that's awesome. Margaret, thank you so much for your time today. I am really looking forward to my next meal in a way that I wasn't a couple minutes ago. And I am always looking forward to my next meal. So Margaret, thank you for the time. I feel like I've learned more about God, certainly learned more about food, and sounds like you did on your journey as well. So thank you for telling us more about our good God.
3: Mm. Thank you.
0: If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by David Roark and edited and mixed by Chris Starrett. We'll see you next time. God bless.